From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, robotic eye surgery. The platform itself, the robot has two side-by-side cameras. So basically, when you're looking through the console, you have a very good depth of field and a very clear image as if you were sitting directly over the patient and looking down. First this, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Tsurbas declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Did you know that you can get every episode of As Seen From Here as soon as it comes out and without ever having to visit a website? It's called subscribing, and it's free. Each week, subscribers get As Seen From Here automatically loaded onto their iPods, MP3 players, and computers by using a program called a podcatcher. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the How Do I Listen button. Subscribing only takes a minute. Free podcatchers are available for Windows, Macintosh, and Linux computers. I've put links to download an excellent podcatcher on the How Do I Listen page of asseenfromhere.com. Then, within hours of my podcasting an episode, you'll have it too. Robotic assistance has emerged as a technique in GI and cardiac surgery where it is valued for the technical precision and facility it affords. Yet, with understandable bias, I cannot imagine a more surgically challenging field than our own. Yet, the robots have not attacked or assisted us until now. Dr. Angelo Tserbus has just published a test study of robotic ocular surgery, and we'll hear from him today. What is a surgical robot? A surgical robot is um, a machine that hovers above the patient in the operating room, and it's got various arms, and the arms have various instruments, and separate to that and remote to that is a console at which the surgeon sits and operates the arms of the robot from that position. So, for instance, I guess your the commonest usage for them is laparoscopic surgery. Uh, have you seen laparoscopic surgery or...? I've never seen it done with a robot, no. Okay, well, it's very similar. Uh, I mean, the laparoscopic surgery that, you know, you would do, that the normal surgeons used to do, you know, where you one person controls the camera and there are various other po- instrument ports for the various instruments, all the, the camera and the instrument ports are now controlled by the robot and the surgeon sits elsewhere. How flexible are the arms? They've got a large number of degrees of movement and uh, there's many, many general surgical operations that have been performed with the surgical robot such that the only FDA-approved robot is about to be made the gold standard for radical prostatectomy by the College of uh, Surgeons slash Urologists. So the instruments that the robot has, basically what it does is it it can move like the surgeon's wrist, but because the effector arms are, are longer and smaller, the surgeon's wrist movements can be transported into a small dark hole, basically, which 
is very helpful when you're operating in the pelvis, for instance, or when you're operating around the bile duct, for instance. So it's, it's very useful for laparoscopic surgery, and it's been used for other types of surgery as well. It's been used for cardiovascular surgery and some applications in ENT and urology as well. So this is technology that's been around now for the last you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And the only company in the States that makes a surgical robot is called Intuitive Surgical. And the only robot available is called the Da Vinci robot. When you talk in the paper about seven degrees of freedom in terms of the arm movement, what does that mean? Well, basically, um, at the end of the instrument, for instance, uh, there is a pincer or a forcep or a scissor that can move exactly like the human wrist. So you can, you know, pronate, supinate, you know, move radially towards the ulna, up, down, forward, back. Just like if you had your hand, um, if you could transport and mimic the movements of your wrist at the end of the robot's arm. So it becomes very useful, for instance, you can't fit your whole hand, you know, through a two centimeter opening, say, for instance, in the abdomen or if you're operating behind the bile duct, or if you're operating behind the prostate, you can do all the movements that the, that the robot can do with your hand, but your hand's too big to fit in there. Whereas it, everything is miniaturized, and say so you know, these effector instruments are only sort of a centimeter or two centimeters long, but they can move like your wrist. So what you're doing is you're operating at a 3D video console, where you're looking at a, at a, a 3D projected image in a machine that looks a bit like an arcade game. Now the, the bowels of the machine are open such that you are moving your hands in space holding on to these particular effector instruments that the movements of your hands in space are then transported you know obviously through you know high bandwidth cables and so on to the robot such that for instance if you close or squeeze the instrument in the console, that same movement is replicated, but obviously on a smaller scale and with no tremor by the robot. What is the interface like for the surgeon? It's a good question. It's a, it's a very good question. I think the, interf the interface is surprisingly good. Now, when initially I became interested in this, I thought I was uh, interested in looking at some ocular, orbital, and ophthalmic uses for the robot, which hadn't been done previously. And I thought it would be a good platform for that because of the miniaturization and the lack of tremor, which is important in microsurgery. The platform itself, the robot has two side-by-side -side cameras, similar to laparoscopic cameras, but more powerful at the bedside, right? That's, the camera is on one of the arms of the robot. Now, the two side-by-side -side cameras provide two images that once they're run through the computer, uh, act like your eyes to give you stereoscopic vision. So basically, when you're looking through the console, it's basically you have a very good depth of field and a very clear image as if you were sitting directly over the patient and looking down. 
Now, the magnification of the microscope can change, obviously, of the cameras can change. So you can be, you know, focused out to look on a larger scale as if you're looking around the abdomen or at the prostate on a larger scale. And you can focus right in on a smaller scale, for instance, if you're using very fine sutures. So in the experiment that we did, we used 10 microfilament nylon sutures, which are the same ones that are used uh, when you're using a standard operating microscope. So the viewing console is very good. I mean, it's, I guess, one of the things that you could equate it with would be like the heads-up display for the fighter pilots. You know, everywhere you look, everywhere you move your head, you know, the computer generates the image that you're looking at in that direction. The console is not physically attached to the robot, right? I mean, it's all, it's all cabling. It's all cabled, yeah. So the console that we operated in was in a different room. So the robot, potentially, uh, that could be a wireless application. Now, at the moment, these applications are only limited by technology. For instance, the bandwidth that you require to transmit real-time three-dimensional images on this particular system is not at a capacity where, for instance, I could be sitting at my lab at UCLA and the patient could be in New York. The robot with the four arms is in New York and the control console is in LA. Having said that, there has been a case of abdominal surgery, right? Yeah, there's been a cholecystectomy that's done transatlantic, but that was with the previous, uh, that was with a previous type of robot called the Zeus. Now, what's happened is that there's been, there were several competing platforms for surgical robots. Some had advantages that others didn't. What happened is the only company in existence at present uh, bought all the competitors and mothballed every other version except the Da Vinci. And what distinguishes the Da Vinci robot? As in, how is it better or worse than previous models? Yeah, how, how is it different from previous models? Well, it's slightly different in that the viewing system is different. It doesn't, you know, the camera display, for instance, creates a 3D image inside the console without you having to wear those 3D glasses that you wear in the cinema. Some of the previous models had that, for instance. Now, uh, and it's slightly more complex and the instruments are slightly smaller, but probably the only thing that really distinguishes it is that uh, it's the only technology available in the States. There is no competitor. Since the movements are being translated through, through signals, through, through cables, is there any sense of latency between when you move and when the machine moves? It's a good question. No, it's real time. So basically, as you move, the, the arms of the robot move. So they've got that down well. But obviously, that's one of the problems with the bandwidth for the current platform that stops you doing it cross-country. Now, I mean, I'm not a computer engineer, but I would certainly think that that's a mechanical and you know technological issue, which basically I think would be fairly easy to solve, I would think. I don't think that's going to be a real issue. Mainly the, the issues for using this robot for ocular surgery, I think, are technical. I don't think necessarily the platform needs to be changed. It's just that a lot of the technology that is used in these robots, to me, on a cursory level, looks like um, 1960s or 70s mechanics. By that I mean, you know, the robots, for instance, surgical robots are lagging so fine so far behind things that are mechanized or in production plants or, 
you know, other types of computer technology that is actually quite surprising. And when you look at these robots, either this one or the previous ones, they've got so many moving parts and the movements are transmitted by gears and levers and pulleys and things that are basically Stone Age technology. Now, that's because there's never been, you know, there's never been a use or an interest for these robots in the medical field. And I think that will change very quickly. I think a lot of this moving parts technology with pulleys and wires and so forth is going to change very quickly. And soon, I think a lot of this is going to be much more sophisticated than it is now. Let me have you describe the design of your study. The study that we did was basically to see if the currently available FDA-approved surgical robot could be applied to the field of ocular surgery. And the initial study that we did was designed to, one, work out, for instance, if the visualization of the camera system of the robot was fine enough to do ocular surgery, two, whether the instruments and arm movements were adequate to do such fine microsurgery, and three, just to see what type of learning curve there would be and how different it would be to operating in the operating microscope. So we used an animal model where we created uh, lacerations to the cornea. Now, usually, you know, that's an, not an uncommon injury that you might be asked to treat as a surgeon, ophthalmic surgeon anywhere in the world. So people have a corneal laceration or a penetrating eye injury, that needs to be sewn up. And to sew that up, we use very fine nylon threads, 10 nylon thread. So what we did was we created these lacerations on an animal model and we got three different surgeons to see if we could actually sew these lacerations up using the super fine sutures and there wasn't a problem with doing that. Obviously there's a learning curve and putting the sutures in was much slower than if you use the operating microscope but this is only a learning curve and we were surprised at how much efficacy the robot had in putting these sutures in. So that was the first experiment. The next experiment was where we looked at the ability of the robot to do vitreoretinal surgery. Now this is as yet unpublished work and we'll be publishing it soon at Arvo. But that again is where we think the applications of the robot will be strongest. Microsurgery, for instance, ocular microsurgery does not give you any mechanical clues. One of the big problems with the robot for abdominal surgery, for instance, is getting the haptic feedback to see how hard you're tying the sutures. And often people snap the sutures because you can't feel them through the arms of the robot. That tactile haptic sensation is not quite there yet. But for ocular surgery, even when you're doing it with the operating microscope, there's no real tactile feedback. The tissues are so delicate, the sutures are so fine that you actually use visual feedback to see how tight you're tying your sutures and how close to various structures your intraocular manipulations are coming. So that wasn't a disadvantage for ocular surgery, the fact that you couldn't really feel how hard you were pulling with the robot, you had to watch it on the image. So that, so that was an advantage. So we thought perhaps a vitrectomy would be a useful um, application for the robot. So to that end, we've done several animal experiments using core vitrectomy and various other things such as epiretinal membrane peeling and endolaser that we'll be showing at Arvo. So it's very exciting. Now, I think you know the applications that we have for it are going to be increased in the future. I think 
from what I understand that the company's bringing out a robot that's a third the size. So this is potentially a small console that could be wheeled over the patient's face and into the operative field that would have much better movement, much better instruments, and I think the applications would increase correspondingly. You said in the paper that the robot was designed for 7-ovicral, is that right? No, I think other people have used, I mean, there wasn't much thought initially for the design of the robot for very fine surgery. So there are several other reports, you know, several microsurgeons have used it, for instance, for tying tendons together or trying to do uh, an operative nerve reconstruction for the plastic surgeons. And they had used some 6.0 and 7.0 sutures, which is about the capacity of the currently available instrumentation. As part of the project, we're designing a whole swathe of new robotic instruments that would be applicable to fine microsurgery, whether that was in the eye or whether that was a plastic surgical application, for instance, for severed fingers or limbs or reanastomosing free flaps and so on. So the instruments need to be redesigned and Obviously, you know, the guidance that's required from the surgeons involved hasn't been there because nobody's used it for ocular applications as yet. What is stereopsis like? Is it adequate to do things like judge the depth of suture placement within the cornea? Yeah, very much so. I think that was one of the things that was uh, a pleasant surprise when we used the robot. There wasn't any difficulty at all in placing the sutures and gauging the depth of the endothelium and the thickness of the cornea. And I've done a separate experiment where I performed a corneal graft using a, again, on this occasion I used 9-0 microfilament suture with a continuous running fashion to sew on a donor cornea, corneal button, to a host uh, animal eye, and that proved uh, fairly straightforward as well. So there's no problems with the depth of field. It only takes a bit of getting used to zooming in and out, as you would with a normal operating microscope. So the stereopsis, even on the basic standard robot that hasn't been adapted for ocular or microsurgical applications, is very good. One of the things that you did in the study was to employ two ophthalmic surgeons who had no experience with robotic surgery, and then one surgeon who was not an ophthalmic surgeon who was used to working with the robot. How, how did the surgeons do? Well, I think one of the ideas behind this was goes back to one of the advantages of um, robotic surgery. Robotic surgery allows people from different fields and from different experience backgrounds to have a filter in place between them and the patient. What I mean by that is the ophthalmic surgeons involved, myself and Professor Mango from Cornell, were very adept, obviously, at doing intraocular surgery, but we'd never used a robot before. Whereas Eric Dutson, who's a minimally invasive surgeon here at UCLA, was very adept at using the robot but had never done intraocular surgery before. So we thought it would be interesting to see both the learning curve for somebody using the robot like us and for Eric to see his learning curve in using the robot for different applications. And uh, I think, you know, we were pleasantly surprised. We found the robot quite easy to use. And with the robot, Eric's learning curve was much, much faster than the normal sort of surgical residence using the intraoperative microscope, which is one of the advantages of the robot itself. The, the general surgeons and the laparoscopic surgeons have several validated 
studies that show how a series of steps that they take their residents through with the robot gives them a good indication when their residents might be ready to actually operate on a patient. So this is both beneficial for the patients as well as the residents. You know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, residents were thrown in at the deep end and it was very much who your attending was that they would say, look, you know, you've seen one of these operations, uh, you've done one, perhaps the next one you should teach somebody else. So that sort of see one, do one, teach one mentality has obviously changed in the last decade. And what we're doing now is we're putting something that's been validated by a series of tests that the residents do using the robot to perform laparoscopic surgery before saying to them, well, now you can go and take out that gallbladder. So that can only be a good thing. And that's especially valuable for ocular surgery where you know the tolerances are so much less. And we've been looking in ophthalmic surgery for a good model on which to teach residents intraocular surgery before they go on take care of patients. And this robot provides another good platform that can be explored towards achieving that end. What is an augmented reality system? I think that's more for applications we didn't use that for. An augmented um, sort of system would be an application, for instance, where if you were doing abdominal surgery and you'd obtained a CT scan or a vascular study of the patient's abdomen, right? And when you were operating in the patient's abdomen, the CT structures and information were also added into your display. I guess a good um, sort of analogy to that, in the old comic books, there used to always be a, you know, a commercial at the back of the comic books with you to get the old x-ray glasses. You put on the x-ray glasses and you can see through your hand. Augmented reality is when you're actually looking, for instance, at the liver. If you're looking at the liver or the gallbladder, the computer interface would superimpose on that the internal structure of what you're looking at based on a previously done scan. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, that's a potential benefit. And it's very useful for things like solid organs, you know, like, for instance, you know, the liver, for instance, and the kidney. One of the advantages might be is when you're actually in the abdomen looking to put a fine needle or do a biopsy of one of these tissues, sometimes it's very hard to tell by just looking at the outside of the liver or the kidney, for instance, where you're going to stick the needle. Augmented reality by superimposing the CT scan that has been previously done helps guide you into the right spot. And you can actually see as you're pushing the needle into the liver in real time how close it is to the superimposed CT image of the lesion. So I think that's an application that is going to become obviously more and more used in the next few years. But it's not as necessary in ophthalmic surgery because obviously the eye has several clear media so it can transmit light and that's how you know we see obviously. So not such an issue in the eye, but be very useful for the orbit and certainly other organ systems throughout the body. What do these robots cost? The cost of the Da Vinci surgical system is around $1 million for the hardware. And I think the upkeep and regular updating of the software brings the 
annual cost to, I think, anywhere from $1.2 to $1.5 million a year. Now, there'll be added pressure, I think, for, you know, almost every hospital that is involved in general slash laparoscopic surgery to buy one of these machines in the next five to 10 years. I've got no doubt that once the various surgical colleges come out with their gold standard guidelines for different types of surgery, through one factor or another, various institutions, you will basically be forced to buy one of these machines, I think. That's the feeling that I get from speaking to people. You know, once something like phacoemulsification for cataract surgery, for instance. You know, 20 years ago, people could get away with doing extracapsular cataract surgery in a big hospital like NYU or the Manhattan Ear or Columbia or wherever it was. But as phacoemulsification became more popular and the gold standard, you can't really do surgery other than that at those institutions. And I suspect that once robotic surgery for various abdominal applications becomes refined and there are enough randomized studies about to show that it is better than the currently used laparoscopic or open technique, I think almost every department in the country will be forced to buy one of these robots. Well, we're on the topic of FACO. FACO is an example of a machine that is computer, if if not computer controlled, there, there, there's at least some large component to the action of the of the machine that is computer mediated. Is the primary advantage of robotic surgery the ability to manipulate fine structures? I think so. I think one of the advantages is one of the often quoted advantages for this particular system is the ability to eliminate things like tremor or physiological tremor or the inability to get into tight spaces. Now, one of the advantages that people have found for general surgical applications, and it may be true for other applications as well, is that the system seems to allow almost all surgeons, regardless of their skill level, to perform at a very high level. By that I mean there may have been operations in the past Radical prostatectomy is a good example that I keep coming back to because the robot's very good for that. Radical prostatectomy in the past was a difficult operation to perform and not all surgeons could do it well. It's my understanding from speaking to the urological surgeons that utilizing the robotic surgery platform, almost all surgeons can now do that operation. So it's allowed the skill level bell-shaped curve to be collapsed towards the higher end of the spectrum. Aside from the suppression of tremor, is there any autonomous movement that the robots will engage in? No, the robot, this is a sort of the second generation type of robot where the robot itself is controlled by a surgeon, uh, albeit remotely. So the robot itself has no autonomous movement, apart from the fact that, you know, there are obviously several fail-safe measures and movements that are coded into the software to prevent problems. For instance, you know, if the surgeon were to slip, for instance, and, you know, for instance, make a big movement in the console, there are software limitations to how far the, the robot arm will move, for instance, inadvertently. 
by that I mean, for instance, you know, you can't sort of suddenly lose your concentration or if the surgeon were to have a stroke at the console and release the controls, you know, there's a sort of a kill switch type of software in the in the program as well. I mean, that's that's a coarse way to describe it, but it's a reasonable way to describe it. It's like, for instance, if you're on a jet ski and you suddenly lose consciousness and let go of the handles, the machine stops, doesn't keep going. So there are those fail-safe measures, which are in part autonomous, but... If by autonomous we're thinking that if you suddenly got up, can the robot finish the cataract operation or can the robot take out the last part of the gallbladder, that we're not at that level yet. But certainly I think cataract surgery may be a procedure that in the not too distant future may be completely mechanized and automated. And that's something we're going to look at, the ability of the robot to do cataract surgery by various special tools that we're designing. I have one last question, Angelo. Yeah, of course. Uh, Have you bought one for your practice yet? (laughs) It's a very good question, Josh. And, uh, you know, to be honest, we're a long way from that. I think certainly uh, I'm at UCLA and we have two machines here and we're getting another machine for the Eye Institute to look at applications. But if I was a solo practitioner or if I was even in a big group practice, Even if I was an early adopter of technology, I'm not encouraging anyone to buy this machine yet. I think we're a long way from that. But what's interesting is that this is a brand new application and it's an application where the more people that get interested and the more minds that start thinking about different ideas, the faster the fuel will evolve. I think, you know, we're at a very nascent stage of this technology and I think it's very interesting and I'm very excited by it. It's very uncommon to have the opportunity to be involved in new surgical technologies or techniques at such an early stage. So I'm really enjoying the opportunities that the robotic surgical platform has afforded us here. And I think that once we show some of the things that we've been doing to a wider audience, I think it will generate a lot of interest. It may well be in the future that the interest doesn't lead to any practical applications, although I don't think that's the case. But at the same time, that that's all part of the investigative package. So, you know, if if you if you start on a process where you already know what the answer is going to be, then that's not really research. So, I, you know, I'm open to see how things develop, but it's very exciting. Angelo, is there anything you'd like to add? The only things that you know that were really interesting to me at the start was that the ophthalmic slash ocular applications of this robot had been completely unexplored. So I thought that was very exciting and I think it's generated quite a bit of interest. I've had a couple of requests to speak to people and I think with these new studies that we're we're bringing out, I think it's going to be very interesting. Some of the biggest um, interest in it I think is, and I speak a little bit about it in the paper, although the other papers will concentrate more on it, is the applications for it perhaps in the military field. And by that, I don't mean that it's it's going to become a Terminator or anything like that. By that, I mean the ability to get high-class ocular services. One of the problems with surgical robots on the battlefield, for instance, if we're looking at Iraq or if we're looking at something else, is that a lot of the abdominal injuries or heavy vascular injuries that occur, you need somebody there because suddenly if somebody starts bleeding from a very large vessel, then 
you would need to open the patient to stop the bleeding and so on. So you need somebody on hand, and it's very hard for the surgical robots to ever be competent enough on that emergency level to do that work. But for eye surgery, for instance, it's very unlikely that you know, you're going to have a life-threatening event during eye surgery. So this particular platform could be used to take, for instance, ophthalmic surgeons that are working in New York or L.A., and one, examine soldiers on the field, and two, perform ocular surgery and intraocular surgery on surg- you know, soldiers in Baghdad or in the Green Zone or in the United Arab Emirates where some of the secondary patients are taken without the usual three to four week wait that it takes to perform intraocular surgery where the patients have to be taken to the UAE, then they take into a, you know, Manstein in Germany and then shipped out to North Carolina or Maryland or somewhere the hospital's there. You know, the average time to repair intraocular injuries, um, you know, during the Gulf War one and two was about three and a half weeks. Several published papers have shown that. And one of the big things with intraocular foreign bodies or with vitreoretinal surgery, one of the biggest things that affects prognosis is the speed at which you can repair things. So that's an exciting application as well. And the military is very interested in looking at that with us uh, to see if there is any possible applications in that field of medicine on the battlefield. So that's interesting as well. Angelo, thank you very much. No problems, Josh. Uh, lovely to talk to you. Angelo Tserbis is assistant professor in the Department of Ophthalmology at the Jules Stein Eye Institute in Los Angeles, California. His paper, Robotic Ocular Surgery, appears in the January 2007 issue of the British Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Tserbis or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.